Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Ceasing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. Today on Seizing Life, I am so excited to welcome two incredible longtime advocates for epilepsy research, Susan Axelrod and Barbara Kelly. They were vital to the formative years of CURE, Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy, the organization now known as CURE Epilepsy. Their passion, determination, and refusal to accept the status quo of epilepsy care for their children led to the emergence of CURE as a boundary-pushing, innovative leader within the epilepsy community. 25 years later, their vision and hard work continue to inform the research that CURE Epilepsy funds today and positively impacts the epilepsy community at large. Susan and Barb are here today to discuss the early days of CURE, its impact on epilepsy research, and their hopes for the future of the organization and advances in epilepsy. Susan, Barb, thank you so much for joining us today. I have to say I have been looking forward to this conversation uh, ever since it was put on my schedule. I didn't come in to cure epilepsy until close to the 20th year. So, so much of the origin stories and and your personal stories, um, it's like cure epilepsy folklore. And so I'm just so excited to, to hear it from your mouths and, and, to hear that history and to get a better understanding of uh, your vision for Cure's future. So to begin, I would love to know how you two first met. Barbara and I met at an epilepsy parent support group uh, outside Chicago uh, some years ago. And um, it it was the first of its kind in the area. And we bonded with each other fairly quickly, as I recall, um, because we really had not yet met other parents of kids with epilepsy. As Barb can attest, it's always been a very lonely diagnosis. And prior to the internet, which this was, um, it was very hard to meet people. Um, And I going back 25 years is sometimes not the easiest thing. So I will defer to Barb on whether that is an accurate memory. I distinctly remember that parents support group and thinking, is this all of the information and help we can get? We've got to do something different. Yeah. Before going much further, I do want to get your personal history about what brought you to that support group that day. Um, My daughter, Lauren, was born in uh, 19... um, 81. And um, in 1982, when she was seven months old, her seizures started and her seizures started with a vengeance. It was, it was um, one seizure after another. She was hospitalized quite frequently on um, endless numbers of medications in various um, cocktails. And um, it really, it really, um, as I mentioned, was was I felt very alone. I thought she probably was the only child with epilepsy whose seizures could not be controlled, because, for goodness sakes, this has been known since biblical times. And so, for I, I actually think that I saw a notice of this support group in a doctor's office, but it was Lauren was probably 
you know, well into her teens at that point. So I had spent a lot of years just being alone. Um, and it, it was a, an amazing experience to meet other people like Barbara and learn that I wasn't alone. So this, this support group is in the mid nineties, um, that you're attending Barb, what brought you to the meeting that day? It was your son who's diagnosed. Yes. Yes, my son. And can you tell us a little bit uh, what you're comfortable sharing about uh, his his journey briefly? Uh, Marty had his seizure uh, at two years of age, was seen at uh, one of the major centers, and uh, he was put on phenobarbital at that time for two years. And after that time, uh, he, they felt that he no longer needed it and uh, progressed. And then later, when he was 16, he had um, a massive seizure and was hospitalized at uh, Mass General in the East where he was in school. Uh, he lives a very full life now, but there's, there's so many restrictions and years of drugs and years of uh, never knowing when the next one would strike, um, have, you know, completely compromised his future. And uh, of all my children, I would be the most proud of what he has accomplished because he's had the toughest uphill climb. And uh, so he works full time and he's independent in many ways, but in other ways, you know, with all the drugs in that, you can see that his future is different on a different trajectory than the others in his family. Now, you've both sort of established that there was there was this loneliness, there was this lack of information or and certainly lack of access to the information that existed and and I know that that was part of what brought the two of you together. However, there's a big jump from recognizing a problem and going on to start a research foundation. <laughs> so what was it? I know it was in 1998, Cura was founded by a group of mothers. What was the impetus that, that took you from that leap, from recognizing the issue and then going and doing something about it? I think for me, one of the things that it took me a while to um, wake up to is the fact that we were um, all talking about how to live a life as well as possible. The motto in the uh, community was, you know, living well with epilepsy. And as we were watching our children, our loved ones uh, deteriorate, um, not be able to live um, anywhere near the lives that we had envisioned for them or hoped for them, and watching people pass away. You know, we sort of, um, it, it took us a few years, I would say, um, to sort of realize that we were each on the same wavelength, but hadn't maybe articulated it yet, that this was not the goal we wanted to be working together on. Um, and at that point, um, we, some of us began to sort of look and think about why, you know, why are our children suffering so some certainly are very responsive to medications and can go on to lead good, happy, healthy lives. Um, but our loved ones weren't. And 
why was that in this day and age? Um, and so that's when just, you know, the conversation around the table, literally around the kitchen table, um, started to go toward what is the NIH doing? Why, why is this such a hard beast to tackle? Um, and Barb, I think, you know, I, I, I know our kitchen table was, <laughs> was, a, was a meeting place for a lot of us who, who, you know, over not too long a time, but it took us a little while, I think, to sort of change our thinking from we were not any longer willing to accept this living well, accept the status quo. We wanted and needed to change it. So Barb, is it safe to say that the cure's mission and vision has always been to find a cure or cures, as the case may be? Well, as Susan said, we felt like the statement living well with epilepsy was a contradiction in terms. And we thought too many people have sat back and decided, well, uh, we're doing the best we can. And we're thinking if this is the best, we need to stir some waters or attack the problem with, uh, really we were on a crusade, I think, with the lack of new treatments or access to the treatments, more information. Uh, and with all the progress, with all the diseases, and you look at epilepsy, and at that point, it was in the dark ages. It wasn't in the 1800s. It was in the dark ages still. And we also wanted to um, know we were doing the most we could for our child, but we thought we knew realistically that many of the complications had already taken place for our children. And we did not want to sit by and watch another generation of children go up, experience what, and the other mothers in the group were all of the same consensus. We needed to do everything we could. We did have fathers with us, and without the fathers, we wouldn't have been any place either, too. So it became um, really a crusade for us. And I think we, we realized... Um... Over time, all of our all of our kids had different types of epilepsies. This is, as as we all know, an incredibly complicated disease. And and you know, some like my daughter had failed over twenty different drugs in various combinations. Surgery um, was she was evaluated for surgery, but it was ruled out as an option. The ketogenic diet, vagal nerve stimulation, and. And you start to go, what What are we doing? Because you'd go to the doctor's office and it was simply a matter of what have we not tried yet? There was no real sort of look at what was causing, you know, what was causing Lauren's seizures versus what was causing Marty's. And we really um, wanted to know, you know, why, why did I put a seemingly healthy seven-month-old baby into her crib one night and have wake up the next morning and think that she had died during the night because she'd had so many seizures. What is happening in that brain and why can't we address it more rationally rather than just throwing one drug after another at it? Hi, this is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy. Since 1998, Cure Epilepsy has raised over $90 million to fund more than 280 epilepsy research grants in 17 countries. Learn what you can do to support epilepsy research by going to cureepilepsy.org. Now back to Seizing Life. 
I think it's it's so important to remember that as you're talking about this, this is 1998, like literally 25 years ago, but I mean, it's just not that long ago. So I, I sort of want to keep that that piece in everyone's mind as we continue to move forward with the conversation. So today we are known as Cure Epilepsy, but that was not always the name of the organization. Originally, we were Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy, shortened to the acronym CURE. Uh, how did you come up with that name? What was the inspiration behind it? Well, the inspiration was, as the name would indicate, a cure for epilepsy, not just yet another therapy that that might work for some of the patients some of the times and just reduce seizures, but really getting to the bottom line about why why a certain brain becomes epileptic and you know what what can we do about that and let's understand that better and address that rather than just addressing the symptoms and i do remember um cure being the driving force behind what we what our goal was um, I, I can remember, I don't know where we were, but I was in the car with my husband and I have a sheet of paper I'm writing down, what can this stand for? Because I felt we felt like it needed to stand for something. And that was how we came up with Citizens United. But Cure was the first, Cure was it. And then we added, you know, we figured out what the C and the U and the R and the E could stand for. We were so driven with determination. We wanted a big, bold statement that was very clear that we needed to take a new look at epilepsy as something that could be cured at some point, but certainly something that needed more attention in a really more of a, it, it was a battleground as far as we were concerned and it needed to be attacked that way. And I will add that there was not, I mean, and I think um, to date, it may be our biggest impact on the field, is that there was not conversation about curing the disease. And in March of 2000, there was a, a White House initiated um, NIH conference um, that was just, it just turned the tables on how we were looking at the disease. And I think there were people who came into this two and a half day meeting thinking, yeah, you know, cure epilepsy, you know, and they came out of it. And these were the researchers saying, we never thought about it. We never thought about it, but they were invigorated, excited, um, really embraced the whole concept. Um, and it was, I think, remarkable to me that people hadn't thought about it. And that was the acceptance that we that we found ourselves, you know, the acceptance of the status quo. You have epilepsy. One of our one of our um, co-founders, Michael Smith, I remember well him saying um, he was he's an epilepsy specialist at at Rush in Chicago, and he said it would be like going in to see your cardiologist and having them say you have blocked arteries, so you can go home and expect to have so many heart attacks a year. I mean, why did we, why did patients accept it? Why did treating physicians accept it? Um, and because they did, the research lagged because nobody was sort of making that rallying cry. Now, at the time that you started Cure, it was, like you mentioned, the internet 
wasn't really a widespread thing. I had the fortune of oh, <laughs> fortune, double-edged sword, I think, of having the internet where I could, you know, I'm up at three o'clock in the morning and I'm can't sleep and I'm reading a, a white paper that I found on Google on one half of my screen and I have like a medical dictionary on the other so that I can like decipher what all of this means. But you didn't even have that with like a layperson's knowledge. Yet here you are, two moms who know all there is to know about their children, but still that that information isn't accessible. How how does this group of of mothers of parents go out and and find out what research needs to be done? How do you access the researchers enough to speak knowledgeably about this? When I look back and I talk to different ones periodically still, different researchers, and what they say is that we were so passionate and we were so determined to do everything we could to help them find the answers, to promote more research, to raise funds for research. And we listened to them. And I can't tell you how many have said that you listened and you acted on what we were telling you and they were so generous in directing us who to ask, who to talk to, but we also listened and heard what they needed. They needed people, they needed more funding and uh, we could provide some funds, but our initial grants were small in the scope of funding research and labs. And, but we did, take chances. Mothers and parents are more desperate. And um, I think it was our willingness to look at some new directions and step back from the problem and think, what can we as lay people contribute? Well, and I have heard specific stories about you, Barb, at the American Epilepsy Society Conference literally chasing scientists, researchers down the hallways, trying to get them to help and to, to get them excited about cure. Um, and I just, I personally love the visual of that. Was CURE the only lay organization sort of attending these scientific conferences at the time? Were, were you one of, uh, you know, were, were parents attending these or, or was it you know, just kind of you guys. There were some others, but not in force, I don't think. Uh, and we, we were passionate and we were determined. And I don't think I literally chased him. But I, <laughs> I spent every waking hour there, as did Susan, working the group, going to sessions, trying to learn. I mean, I, I think they tolerated us initially because we were appropriate and we were desperate to learn and we attended everything we were supposed to. Uh, but then as it evolved and the, the, the incredible generosity and uh, willingness to help us of 
the group was unbelievable. And because we appreciated everything they did, we also, being the mothers, thought, well, we have to do some little payback. And we did initially, uh, we had a reception for the uh, researchers who we were awarding grants to, and we tried to make it very special although we were very careful with our money. Susan and I bought our own paper and everything else and did that kind of thing. But we knew that maybe we needed to spend some money trying to say thank you. And I that I think also served us well because they, it, and because Susan attracted so many of the stars in epilepsy research to our events. <laughs> but that they came and it was a ticket in and I can't tell you how many say oh going to your reception was just unbelievable so I think it was a two-way street and the grants we gave at that time were very significant to us but in the scope of doing epilepsy research when you think of the postdocs and the all the expenses of doing it uh it was incredible we got them to work on our projects for the money we had at that time that's the way to get anyone to a party i guess you know college kids researchers you just give them some cocktail and hors d'oeuvres and and they <laughs> come streaming in i'm curious you know you, you're talking about the researchers and i want to know how you know, you started that grant review process, you know, who was responsible for reviewing the grants in those those early days? Once again, we have to say thank you to the Epilepsy Research Committee and their generosity in doing it and then being among the scientific advisors, they would take the time to walk through the review and structure it. I mean, I was a philosophy major, how I set up the research stuff, I don't know, except through the dedication of those researchers, both the clinicians and the research, to helping us and guiding us and steering us in the right direction. One of our other gifts was the fact that because we were desperate to see some different research that might affect different children and different people, that we were willing to take chances and we could see that the really, really, so many of the really bright uh, and very creative researchers needed to have a lab and they needed to have students there and one of the things, one of my dreams has always been to have a mentor award for the senior scientist who, you know, encourage these young people and keep them in the field. And it was also one of our goals to attract and keep people in the field of epilepsy research. And yeah, so I think it's been a two-way street always. Well, and... You know, and correct me if I'm wrong, Susan, but it's also my understanding, you know, Cure has always, it is, you know, 
patient-driven research, patient-focused research. So in addition to our scientific researchers, there has always been lay research reviewers as well. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. That's always been one of our one of our core values is to have a focus on patient-driven research, patient-focused research. Um, we have sat in the rooms, and and I um, to to build on what Barbara was saying. I think that as much as we got out of our sessions sitting around reviewing grants uh, with our research committee, I think they also, in the same way, the two-way street, got a lot out of. Under, first of all, just understanding more, you know, we would say, well, that's not important. That particular focus of that grant is not important to us. This is. And so they would learn sort of what was important to patients and, and the motivation and the hopes of, of patients and loved ones. Um, and so that was just a, it was a great synergy. It really, it really, I think, worked well for us. And I think as much as we got out of it in terms of our, our learning curve, for the science, um, they also um, felt supported. I mean, I know, and without naming names, I know of somebody who used to come and sit on our advisory board. And um, I've heard uh, subsequently from his wife that who has sort of gotten involved um, with Cure um, that the reason she did was because she saw the change in her husband after he, and he'd been in the field a while. But there was something just energizing about his time spent with us at Cure and recognizing for him, recognizing how important the work is and how much it means to lives and how overlooked it has been. Um, and one of the things that I think Barbara has brought to, um, to Cure um, in her time with us was not just helping us to get a group of researchers and scientists together that knew the field, but also she was so tuned in, keyed in on the personalities and where they came from and how they would interact because you could put, you know, six of the greatest minds together and get nowhere. But Barbara had this ability to, to know who was, who was comfortable in a room together, who where you know, where that interaction that would be fruitful would come from. And so we were very fortunate to have her, not just her scientific skills that she learned, but also her just understanding of, of human nature and, and uh, community. I love that. Going back even further, I think a little bit, um, how, how did you start fundraising? Where did those initial donors even come from? Because fundraising is a challenge and you're talking about, you know, fundraising for research grants, which is, is you know, that's not small money. I mean, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars per grant. What tactics did you have at the beginning? You know, I, I would say we got incredibly um, fortunate with it, at with the timing at the beginning of of Cure because we were our, our very first fundraising event um, was keynoted by then First Lady Hillary Clinton. Um, she came. Uh, to Chicago. She visited some patients in the hospital. She looked at EEGs. She learned a lot herself. Um, and then she came and, and did the keynote address at our very first fundraiser in January of um, 99. So three months after we 
became a 501c3. We got word that she could do it with six weeks notice over the holidays. Uh, we put together this event that was fabulous and that just, you know, one of those things being in the right place at the right time with somebody who can bring people into the room who were not connected to epilepsy, but perhaps knew us, knew our story, learned some stories there. Um, and she brought them in. And so it really, it, it just put us on the map. And I think, you know, that was another jaw dropping experience. Like we raised more money than we ever anticipated at our first fundraising event. And that, that sort of got the ball rolling for us very nicely. Um, so it takes, you know, sadly in this world of disease advocacy, you've got to raise awareness about your disease. And, and if you can get a public figure to come and be an advocate for you, it always helps. Um, and, you know, I've heard that from the directors at the NIH, you know, who have said, um, you know, we need patient advocates. We need people out there making noise about the need for this, this research and this disease. It also was the time after that event where um, we had so many comments, notes, letters um, afterwards from people saying, I had no idea. I had no idea what epilepsy was all about. Um, and that was when we revisited our mission statement and said, not that we, you know, honestly, I could care less if anybody knows about epilepsy because I want to put it, I, I want to end it. Um, so our mission is not to raise awareness except as a vehicle toward raising more dollars for research. And that was sort of a moment where we revisited and added the awareness component, realizing that we had to elevate the profile of epilepsy or we were not going to get anywhere. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's still something that we struggle with today, that sort of awareness. And, you know, I, I think there's a multitude of reasons for that. As much as we want to put all of the money toward research and finding a cure, you can't raise the money if you, people don't know why you need the money, right? Yeah. Yeah. Nonprofits have a, have a special challenge in that, you know, you're not supposed to spend your money on anything other than the mission, but if you don't, you're going to be sort of, you know, spinning your wheels yeah. forever. So, you know, I want to take one last opportunity of sort of looking back on the last 25 years of this organization and find out from each of you what accomplishment that Cure Epilepsy has achieved that you are the most proud of? I would say that our, um, our initial emphasis on a cure, rather than simply treating symptoms, um, was a major, a major um, change in the, in the entire um, epilepsy community. Um, and I remain very proud of that. I am proud of the doors that we have opened in terms of areas of research that we were willing to investigate that others might not have been. Um, I'm proud of the hope and, and inspiration that, that we have, um, again, this wasn't our mission, but that we have offered to families that are going through this. Um, I think we, we all talk to, um, to families with new diagnoses. Um, and I think for them to know, as we did not at the time, that there is a group out there that's got their backs that is going to do everything they can. We have 
done a lot of the things we wanted to, but we haven't certainly have not achieved our final goal. But I do think we are have so many more tools available and all the genetics and all the tech and the ability to get the information out that we should make our progress should be at least doubled in the next 10 years. And of course, Susan and I would like to find some major grant that would just take down the walls of epilepsy forever for all. But Yes, agreed. Really, really anxious to, to, to get that big breakthrough. Um, and I think it's, um, you know, it's got to happen. It's just not going to happen without continued, um, continued work, continued dollars, um, and the drive of, um, of the researchers and the families. It's, it's maintaining that sense of urgency that, the, you know, we, there are still patients who are dying. And, and I think we have to, you know, we have to hold our foot on the gas pedal. Um, but I do, I just, what the two of you did alongside the, the arrest of the originating uh, Cure Epilepsy Board and, and the Scientific Advisory Council and, and, and changing that narrative you know, so that it wasn't just living well, that researchers and scientists were all of a sudden contemplating cures, that we weren't settling for treatments. The number of treatments that we have now since 1998 is numerous. The, the advances that we've seen in the technology for, for brain surgery, for all of these things. And I want to hear from you both. What is it? What what research or new studies or findings uh, have you read about recently that is giving you hope? I, I am particularly excited about areas where we may be able to identify who is at risk, for example, with head injuries um, and how we could intervene beforehand and actually prevent the whole cascade of events that leads to a chronic epilepsy. Um, and that to me is just maybe the lowest hanging fruit. And I feel like if we can tackle one thing at a time and, and have a great success to celebrate, um, that that will then start to fuel um, other, other progress, more and greater progress. I mean, I think as well, of course, the genetics, but there are so many genes associated with epilepsy and um, again, do we tackle them one at a time? I have to defer to the scientists. And, you know, I think one of the things that we always have to know about uh, scientific research is that there is, you can plan as, as well as you want. You can be as methodical as you hope, but there is, there is a lot of just plain luck and being in the right place at the right time and maybe talking to the right person. Um, we have always believed in um, bringing people together from different disciplines and the things that people can, f maybe a spark gets lit, you know, there's an idea from something else that, that could fuel this. So I think it's, it's really hard to be really linear. And I think if, if you are too much that way, then you also could miss an opportunity. Um, so as much as I would love to say, we just need to do A, B, C, D, and we're going to get to our end goal. 
I think it's not the way science works. No, I think you're right. Although the the research coming out of post-traumatic epilepsy and preventing it before it even occurs is so exciting to to read up on. Barbara, what about you? What areas of research are giving you hope these days? I, I also second Susan on the TBI and the and just early diagnosis, early and then intervention and prevention. I mean, if we could do that alone, we would have definitely made a significant advance. But we need to venture out into unknown territory and just take advantage of the new technical advances. And that it just, it's incredible what new skills and new tools we have. And we ha- do have wonderful researchers and people working on it. So we need to keep saying, thank you, keep working. Do work overtime, please. <laughs> 100%. I just, I just wanted to, I want to add one thing, which is, um, Kelly, you know, I thank you for your appreciation of what came before you, but I want to, I want to thank you and your generation for picking up the torch and, and running with it. I think, you know, looking at the next generation and, and new parents in this, in this field, you know, we don't want anybody to enter our club, as we always say, but we're here. I'm, I'm so impressed always with, um, and in part, I think it is because the uh, accessibility of information on the internet, but the, the way new parents are diving in and becoming so educated themselves is just incredible. Um, so we're, while we're happy to have sort of laid a, you know, a platform groundwork, for for this um you know we are so grateful to all of you who are going to keep it keep it going um in the same way that barbara talked about you know appreciating the mentors in the research field you know i think we will always be as long as we're around available to to support you um and all the other um people who are just entering the epilepsy space but um it's 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 a new era, and I think you know wonderful uh, wonderful things can and will happen. You two are my mentors. I look up to you, and and I am inspired by you daily. And the drive and the fight that you have twenty five years later with this organization, but you've been fighting epilepsy for for decades before that, both of you. And so I am just I'm so grateful to both of you for taking for taking time out of your day to chat with us and to share this story and and for I mean, that's just that's the cherry on top, right? for all of your commitment over decades of work. So I'm just I'm so appreciative to both of you. This entire community is. Um, thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Susan and Barb, for sharing your stories, memories, and hopes for the future with us today. More importantly, thank you for your many years of tireless support and dedication to epilepsy research and for the compassion and advice that you continue to share with families impacted by epilepsy. Cure Epilepsy continues the relentless pursuit of a cure that these two remarkable women started 25 years ago. You can help us achieve our goal of a world without epilepsy by visiting cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. 
Cure Epilepsy, inspiring hope and delivering impact. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cure Epilepsy. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. Cure Epilepsy strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical conditions be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.